Genesis 48 is the text we've been in for three weeks now. It's an incredible chapter where Jacob is at the end of his life. He gets word to Joseph, my time is about at hand, so come and see me. Joseph not only comes to visit his father, but he brings with him his two oldest children, Manasseh and Ephraim. And an amazing thing takes place, actually two amazing things. When Jacob comes to the time of blessing, he adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. We're going to see the, the importance of that this morning as we talk about the heart of the blessing. But he says, you, you're mine now. Yes, biologically you're Joseph's, but you're going to be counted as a son of Jacob. The second amazing thing he does is that he switches the blessing. Joseph had lined everything out so that Manasseh, the oldest, would be on Jacob's right hand and receive the greater blessing that would go to the oldest. But Jacob, ever the trickster, switches his hands. And he places his right hand on the head of Ephraim. Just a reminder of the surprising nature of God's grace, that often the, the last will be first, the weakest will be often the strongest in God's economy. And then we come to the, the focal point of the blessing. The moment when Jacob prays over his two adopted grandsons. This morning I want us to take a look at the content of what he prays. And it's my prayer that we will see this as a model, a paradigm, for how we are to pray for our children and our grandchildren. But even more than that, I pray that it will grab our hearts so that we will see what we need to prioritize in our lives. What is the most important thing to God? With that said, I draw your attention to verses 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Would you please bow with me in prayer again? Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, we do so confessing and asking for your help. We confess our need for your guidance. Your word is truth. So we ask you, Father, to lead us into truth. To illuminate our hearts and our minds. And, Father, we pray for the, the power of the Holy Spirit to be evident as, it, as he takes your word and transforms us by it. Lord, we ask that you would make our hearts moldable. If we have become rigid in our thinking and our hearts are hard, Lord, soften us. Please, Father. 
And let the seeds of the gospel take deep root in our hearts. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It's a very hot, sweltering summer day at the end of August. When approximately 250,000 people gathered on the Mall of Washington, D.C. in 1963. They'd come from all over the nation to gather for the March on Washington, a movement, a, a moment as a part of the Civil Rights Movement. Already that day there had been singers that had sung, speakers that had spoken, but it was all building toward the climax when, when the leader, Martin Luther King Jr. Would, Jr., would stand to address the crowd. And address the crowd he did. The speech he gave that day known as the I Have a Dream speech is one that is recognized as one of the greatest in American history. In fact, in 1999, a, a group of scholars who study public speaking deemed it the greatest speech of the 20th century. The lines were memorable. But it almost didn't happen. Not that he didn't speak, but that the lines that became the touchstone of that speech almost weren't delivered because the night before as he was working on the manuscript and he was talking with his advisors, they would say, Martin, you've, you've used that before. You don't want to go back to that. It'll, it'll sound too much like a sermon. People will get, get lost if you keep going back to that same theme. So you better, better leave that out. And that's exactly what he did. The I have a dream portion of the speech was not written in his manuscript. The time came for him to speech, to speak. And the speech started out slow and it didn't pick up much speed. In fact, it was falling flat. It was at that moment that one of the people seated behind him, one of the many dignitaries, a, a woman, a famed gospel singer by the name of Mahalia Jackson, began to, to speak just loud enough for, for Martin Luther King to hear her, and she started to say, Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. Let him know about the dream. And at that moment, Martin Luther King Jr. went off script and began to ad-lib. Oh, could I ad-lib like that? He ad-libbed what became the most memorable portion of that speech. Now, the reason I mention that is this. The most important thing that needed to be heard almost wasn't heard because there were voices drowning it out. How often do we let the voices of our society drown out the most important things? How often do we let the demands of life overcome and become louder than the things that really matter? You and I are easily distracted. We are hit with a thousand messages that often distract us from the one thing that is the most important. We chase a hundred different things and often neglect the one thing that we need to focus on more than anything. Now, that's the, the challenge of life. Parents, if you have not hit that, hit that moment, you will hit it when the demands of life seem to overwhelm you. When you've got to get junior to baseball practice by four, 
little princess to ballet practice by five and you're not sure how you're going to pick them up and you're trying to juggle that with getting dinner ready and getting everything else together. It's enough to make a person lose their mind. My mom used to say she gave birth to me once but spent 16 years delivering me. But here's what often happens. We have a tendency to make the most important thing getting them to baseball practice, getting them to ballet. But what if that's not the most important thing? What if the most important thing is what happens in that 20 minutes when you're with them in the car and they can't go anywhere? Could it be in our rush to get there in order to arrive over here? We miss the most important thing. Take advantage of those moments. Because that time together is precious and can never be gotten back. What if that conversation you have then is really at the heart of the matter? In Genesis 48, Jacob brings us back to the heart of the matter as he prays this blessing on his adopted sons. He brings us back to the heart of what matters when it comes to praying for our children, for our grandchildren, and he brings us back to the heart of the matter of what you and I should be pursuing in life. Now, last week we examined the foundation of this blessing, of this prayer. The, the foundation is in three parts. It's the fact that God is our covenant maker. This is in verse 15. It's the fact that God is our shepherd. And it's that God is our redeemer. God serves as the foundation for the prayer that we pray, for what we seek in life. Now, out of that foundation, we see a model for prayer. Now, there are many things that you and I pray for our children, and they're not bad things. Is it bad to pray for your child's future husband and wife? Is that bad? No. Is it bad? No, it's not bad. Is it a bad thing to pray for their future vocation? Is that bad? Is it bad to pray for where they may go to school? There you were, you're a little weaker on that one. Those are not bad things to pray, but I would submit to you, those are not the most important things to pray for. Now as we look at this passage, we're following the same model we did last week. Abraham looked forward to the day of Jesus and rejoiced when he saw it. We are looking back as believers on this side of the cross to understand this passage. To understand its fulfillment and its import through Jesus Christ. So that now we see what the heart of the matter is, is that as we pray, we should pray for God's blessing upon our children and our grandchildren and our lives. Notice the very, the, the center point in verse 16, bless the boys. He is asking God to bring about his favor upon Manasseh and Ephraim. He's saying, God, let your smile be upon them. Now we must wrestle with this question then. What does it mean to be blessed by God? What does it look like for the favor of God to rest upon a person? Now whether we mean it or not, 
often our minds will gravitate toward blessing defined as wealth or ease of life. Comfort. We will say, God, bless them so they have an easy life. Bless them so that they have all the material things that they need. But the reality is that all throughout history, there have been believers that have been rich and poor. There have been non-believers that have been rich and poor. There have been believers that have had an easy life and have had a hard life. There are non-believers who have had an easy life and a hard life. We cannot accurately gauge God's blessing by an ease of circumstance. I would submit to you it goes much deeper. Look up on the screen, you'll see Hebrews, a portion of Hebrews 11. Now, the print is small, and I apologize for that, but I wanted to see two sides of this passage aligned next to one another. We'll start on the left. In the hall of faith, as the, the preacher of Hebrews is talking about, here are examples of faithfulness. Look at what he says. Who, men and women who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. That's some good stuff right there. Give me that type of faith. Give me the faith that will shut the mouths of lions and put armies to flight. Give me the type of faith that will resurrect the dead. That's the whole, yeah, that's blessing of God. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Look on the other panel. Others suffered mocking and flogging. Even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Like I said, let me stay in that first panel. Now, which side was faithful to God? Both. Which side was blessed by God? Both. It was just in God's sovereign will there were different circumstances that they faced. You see, the blessing of God is much more than wealth and ease and being carefree and comfortable. The blessing of God is this. It is knowing His favor, His grace, no matter the circumstances. No matter if you're on the left side where you put armies to flight, you can say, God is mine and I am His. Or if you're on the right side and you're in chains and you're in prison, you can say, praise God, I am His and He is mine. That is the blessing of God. It is knowing whether you are in the valley or on the mountaintop that you walk in His joy. The blessing of God is the serenity of soul that says, I am loved by a love that can never stop. It is to dive deeply into the supply of His grace. It is to be submerged into the spring of His holiness. To be blessed by God is to abide in Christ. For there is no circumstance that can take away his love. There is no darkness that can dim his light. There is no burden that can crush his compassion. And if we can pass along that love and the grace of God so that our children and our grandchildren are captivated by it, no matter the circumstances they face, we can say they are highly favored of God. That's what we are to be after. See, wealth gained can be lost. 
health can leave suddenly. Success is a fickle friend that will leave as quickly as she arrives. That's why we must cling to the rock of ages that will not crack or crumble. The love that will not leave the power of God unto salvation. But keep this in mind. As we pray for our children to know the blessing of God, the favor of God, the grace of God. And as we seek it, here's the second part of it. The heart of the blessing, this prayer to be blessed, means that the identity we seek will be found in a covenant with Christ. That's the flip side of the blessing. When Jacob prayed this, notice the request. Let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. He prays that his name would continue on through them. Now, this is more than just saying whenever somebody would meet Manasseh and Ephraim, they would think of Jacob. It's much more than that. It's much more than saying, are you related to Jacob? It is about covenant. The point of remembering the name is not to know Jacob or Isaac or Abraham. It is to know the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and the God of Abraham. It is to know the covenant which God made with Abraham. So when he says, let, them be, let my name be carried on, he is saying, let the covenant continue through them. Let them be so associated with me that they know the God I serve. You see, to be named by the name is to enter into solidarity with. It's to be one with. That's why in marriages for millennia, the wife would adopt the husband's name. It was a way of saying we are one. We have entered into solidarity with one another. When we enter into a covenant relationship with God, we enter into solidarity with Him by covenant so that we bear His name and we are connected with Him, through Him, by Him, and to Him. That's exactly what Jesus prayed. Look upon the screen. You'll see a portion of the prayer Jesus prayed the night He was arrested. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Isn't it amazing Jesus prayed for us? Right there. Look at what he prayed for us. That they may all be one. That's the idea of solidarity, connectedness. Now notice the description of how we are to be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. Carry on the name, united with, in solidarity with. So that, here's the end result of our solidarity with God through Christ. The world may believe that God sent Jesus. He says, as we carry on the name, we carry on the gospel. So that in our lives, the world will see our solidarity with God through Christ. And point to Jesus and be glorified through that. That's one of the blessings of carrying the name. You see, when we carry the name of Christ and we are one with Him, we then have access to the riches of His grace and His power. This past week, I did something. Well, it really, I started to say risky, but it really wasn't risky because I trust her tremendously. You know, in all this that's been going on with me and my family, uh, my oldest daughter, Ellen, and my son, Samuel, have had to grow up quickly. They've had to be on their own a lot. And... I'd come home one day and was taking a look at Ellen's tires and noticed she needed new tires. 
But most of my time is spent up in Bristol. So I said, this is what I'll do. Ellen, I'm going to call and make the appointment for you to take the car in, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my credit card because <laughs> I trust you. All right? I trust you. Here it is. The, use it to pay, and that way you'll get your tires. Now, here's the thing. When, that ta when the bill came due, in a way, she assumed the identity of Mark Herod. And because she was in my identity, that was credited to her account. It was paid for in that way. Now, I'm paying for it. But isn't that the gospel? We stand in Jesus' name, using his name for what he has paid for. And because we are in faith covenant with him, we have access to that grace to continue on and on and on that we may know the riches of his grace. You see, to be in covenant means that our identity is transformed, we are connected with him, and it means that we walk with God. You see, to be in covenant with Jesus is not just to bear the name, but it means that when we bear the name, our lifestyles are changed. Our lifestyles are changed because our values are changed. You see, when your values are changed, you live differently. And when you live differently because your values are changed, it means your desires have been transformed. Because when your desires are transformed, you value things differently. And because you value things differently, you live differently. You see, you live differently because your values are changed, because your desires are different, because God, when you are saved, takes out the heart of stone and gives you a new heart of flesh that desires things differently so you have different values so you live differently because you've got a new heart that's what happens in the covenant that's to the glory of God you see to carry the name means transformation change let me use as an example Manasseh when Joseph named Manasseh he did it because the name Manasseh meant something this is what Manasseh means God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. Now think about that for a moment. Here's his firstborn son. He says, finally, God has helped me forget the hardship of my father's house and my father's name. You think he had some bitterness issues? Absolutely. But in this moment, he says, don't let them be known by that name. Let them be known by the name of the covenant. The change of name means that Manasseh will not be known by his father's bitterness. He will not be known by his own struggles. He will be known by the name of the covenant. Because when you carry the name of the covenant in Jesus Christ, the former identity must be left behind. You see, our identity is how we see ourselves. It's how we see our, our role in the world. It expresses our values. The truth is, we all need a change of identity because we are all prone to measure ourselves wrongly. I read a story of an event that took place in Mumbai, India in 2011. 285 girls gathered for a party. This is a very unique party. Because each of the 285 girls had the same name. Every one of those girls was named Nakusa. Because that name means unwanted. 
Whenever the girl baby would be born, this little girl, she would be abandoned because males were privileged. And when she would be found, she would be named Nakusa. Unwanted. Whenever she was growing up, every time her name is mentioned, she is reminded of her identity, unwanted. But at this party, something amazing was happening. Every one of the girls was receiving a new name. There were cakes. There were certificates stating, your name is no longer Nakusa. Your name is the one you have chosen for us. At the moment of our salvation, we say the name unwanted is left behind. And now there is a new name written down in glory. From the moment we are saved we can leave behind the monikers the world gives us of adulterer of greedy, the one of, of, of licentiousness, the one of a drunkard and we can say now I belong to Jesus. Now the challenge of this is that the world around us doesn't want us to have a new identity. It's comfortable with where we are and the truth is our flesh is comfortable with it. You see, to change that identity brings about states of discomfort. For so long, we have been defined by our sin that now we have a break from it and we're not sure what to do. See, Manasseh and Ephraim faced this. Don't forget where they lived. They're in Egypt. And on top of that, their maternal grandfather was a priest of an Egyptian god. I wonder if Joseph dreaded the kids going over to that grandparent's house. Oh, what will they learn there? You see, there are going to be challenges. Now, God has granted us several means to live in our new identity. Prayer, the Word of God, preaching, the community of the saints. All these are means by which we live in our identity in Christ. But there's one that often we overlook, and to me, it's one that stands out in the book of Genesis. You see it clearly up on the screens in Genesis 50. Now Joseph is near death. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Think about that. Joseph sees his grandchild, his great-grandchild, and his great-great-grandchild. And notice the children of Machir the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, keep in mind, they're in Egypt. Keep in mind that Joseph had been the second in command in Egypt. Wealth, power, and comfort were for him and his family. So does Joseph look at his boys and say, I've built you all an empire here. Stay put. You've got it made. Everything's easy. No, Joseph doesn't. He cast a vision 
a vision and says, our God be with you. He's going to visit you and you're going to go to the land that is promised. Because even though this land may be good, the promised land of God is better. Even though things may be comfortable here, the promised land of God is better. He cast a vision of the goodness of God that says, no matter what you think about the world here, it pales in comparison to the goodness of what God has in store. We need to cast a vision of the beauty and the goodness of God to our children, to our grandchildren, and to our friends so that we bring alive what we read in the Word so that we take these words and we speak to them of the beauty of God and the greatness of God and the glory of God so that they will get a taste, a taste that what God offers is so much better than the things of this world. I was reminded of the power of vision. This past week, I read a story told by a man by the name of Rob Campbell. Rob, in 1977, was in the cutting edge of the computer field. He was wanting to get a job as a computer programmer. So he started visiting some of the, the up-and-coming companies. He went to a company called Tandy. All right, remember Radio Shack? Tandy owned Radio Shack, and he sits down with a representative from Tandy, and he asks them, What's your vision for the personal computer? The representative from Tandy said, Well, we think it could be the next big thing on everybody's wish list for the holidays. We're going to sell a lot of them. That didn't inspire Campbell a whole lot. So he went to his next meeting. It was with the representative from the Commodore Company. Commodore's stock was trading at less than a dollar. He asked them, what's your vision for the personal computer? The representative said, well, we believe that the personal computer can help our stock rise to over $2 a share. They didn't do much for Campbell. So he went to his third meeting. His third meeting was with a man that at that point was unknown in the world, but he's sure known now because he sat down with Steve Jobs. And he looked at Steve Jobs and he said, what is your vision for the personal computer? And he said for the next hour, Steve Jobs talked about how the personal computer was going to change the world. He painted a picture of how the world would, how the personal computer would change everything about the way we work, the way we're educated, and the way we're entertained. And Rob Campbell said, you couldn't help but buy in. What's the vision you're passing along of God? Do your eyes light up when you talk about the grace of the cross? It's been said that we will teach what we know, but we will reproduce what we are. And our children need to know that our God is bigger and greater than anything in this world. Because he's bigger, he gives us a purpose that goes beyond this world. Look at the third thing to pray for. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, the immediate context is basically this. Let them have many children. There's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, I'm afraid sometimes in the church we adopt the mindset of the world that look at people that have more than 1.5 kids like... Don't they know what causes that? I've got three children. 
There's nothing wrong with having large families. Children are a blessing from God. But as we look through this through the lens of the cross, I think it's more than just saying, may they have many children. I think this idea of multiplying in the midst of the earth speaks of our mission to spread the gospel. Remember what God told Abraham in Genesis 17? Through you I will bless the nations. What is the Great Commission? To go into all the nations preaching and teaching. The blessing of Abraham is that he looked to Christ and that in Christ the blessing would be multiplied as people are brought into God's family. So when I think of this, I'm reminded that we need to pray that our children will get a vision of God that will implore them and impel them to live for something greater than the things of this world. To say my purpose is to spread the gospel. Now, I may be a school teacher. School teacher is a noble profession. But as a believer, your purpose is to spread the gospel, and teaching school is a means through which you can do that. Being a banker is a noble profession. But for the believer, being a banker is not an end unto itself, it's a means to share the gospel. You see, this for us is not a prayer that every child would grow up to be a preacher. I almost feel like I need to put a caveat in there like a bad country song mamas don't let your babies grow up to be preachers let them be doctors and lawyers and such his point is this whatever the call is on your life believer the one thing for certain is it's to share the gospel let us pray for our children to know that purpose so they're not sidetracked pursuing all these other things but they will see their purpose is greater, greater than the things of this world. It's been said that if somebody hasn't found something they're willing to die for, then they're not really ready to live. More than ever, that purpose is needed. So, when it comes to it, what are we praying? Our children will know the covenant of God in Jesus Christ through His grace. That their identity will be found in the gospel. And that their purpose, they will know their purpose, is more than just making a living. Now, it's easy to sit back and say, all right, now I've got a model on how to pray. I'm going to be praying for my children and my grandchildren that they'll know the covenant of God in Jesus Christ, that their identity will be in Christ, and that their purpose will be the gospel. But I want to ask you, before you pray for your children and your grandchildren, will you apply the oxygen mask principle? You know, that principle comes from when you're on the airplane and they're giving you instructions on what to do if the oxygen mask fall and they say if you have small children place the oxygen mask on your face first and then the kids so I ask you today to apply the oxygen mask principle before you pray that for your children and grandchildren are you living in covenant with God through Jesus Christ is your identity founded upon the gospel and do you see your purpose as making disciples no matter what your job may be your calling 
is to make disciples. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.